Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 952, with David Kirshner. To speak frankly, I need to go get my ass kicked on the line somewhere. I need to go be a part of a place that doesn't serve 100 people a night with like 40 people on staff. You know, or the hotline is like 15 or something like that. You know, it's they're not real numbers. Like, how do you crank? So that first experience with Michael Mina boils down to that. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Looking to make your life easier? Then Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor targets, and keep your entire team connected. With drag-and-drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier. In fact, I haven't come across a restaurant tour using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Restaurant Unstoppable listeners get three months absolutely free get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable that's the number seven s h i f t s dot com slash unstoppable to get three months free and join over thirty thousand restaurants using seven shifts today Today's episode is brought to you by Pop Menu, and restaurants have been hit hard over the past last years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever, trying to meet the expectations of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like... Can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro and they are launching their first time ever 60 day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest founder ceo and executive chef of dine dk private dining david kirshner my man david are you feeling unstoppable today feeling unstoppable yes dude i cannot wait to dive into your story i love the fact that you have such an untraditional unconventional 
I mean, the way you came up is pretty traditional, but like once you realized there was another way, you said, why am I going to open a restaurant when yeah, I could do it like this? Absolutely. Uh, and that's a little bit of a teaser. Uh, before we really get into who you are and how you got to where you are today, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? So I got two. First one, make it happen 24-7. It's what Ooh. we do. It's what we do. We make people happy. We figure out our way through it. And no matter what, hold the line. You get put up against the wall. Situations come up. No matter what you do, don't compromise who you are, what you do, what you provide. So th- this is why we have core values. This is why we have standards, right? That's the line. That's, Absolutely. That you don't go past that. And that's why we need these things so we know what to hold, right? Exactly. Awesome stuff, man. Great way to get this thing started. So you knew pretty early on that you wanted to be in the restaurant industry. In my research, I saw that you were at Per Se with an internship. Mm-hmm. It showed up that that was before... The culinary, uh, sorry, uh, the Johnson and Wales University. What did I go? Is it just Johnson and Wales? So Johnson and Wales University. Yeah, yeah. That's so it was my senior internship, actually. Okay. Yeah. I was like, how did he get into per se before going to? <laughs> that? I was, okay, so I was curious about that. So, you, but you didn't know that you wanted early on to get into the culinary industry. When when did you know that? Uh, so I think my origin story goes back almost to when I was like eight, nine years old. I was that kid that. We didn't have Food Network yet out in Jersey where I grew up, but my aunt who lived out in Great Neck on Long Island did. And I remember going out to her house and posting up in her bed, basically. And we'd be there as a family hanging out, and I'd be, you know, just cranking away when it comes to, like, original essence of emerald, um, you know, the galloping gourmet. There was so much about food that was just enamored and kind of around my world for so long. And also just coming up as the type of kid that I was, you know, light, nightlife spoke to me. Some of my first jobs were setting up the banquet rooms at Jersey uh, Temple, banquet halls, rolling tables, setting up catering um, rooms, bar backing. So I was always part of the reg- restaurant industry growing up, being a server in high school. And I knew there was something about it that just spoke to me. The hours, the nightlife, the hustle, the grind. And when I was thinking about what's my direction out of high school going to be like, I had done a shadow program at Johnson & Wales saw what it was all about, saw that I wasn't going to get lost in a lecture hall of 300 plus people. I can be in a focus group. You know, my class was 16 plus people. I was on my feet running around. You had a block of classes that like kept you hyper-focused and maybe this little, the ADHD within me kind of coming out. But the idea that I could be in class from seven to 12 or one to seven hyper-focused was really appealing to me. So I started kind of going down that side of the world. Yeah. Um, this is something I kind of like to talk about it. It comes up often because we take this traditional path. Like how'd you get into the industry? A lot of people go to culinary school. A lot of people don't go to culinary school. For me, it's like 50, 50 as far as like, I've seen that there isn't really a trend that if you go to culinary school, you you'll be more successful. Definitely. Um, Do you regret it? If you could do it again, would you do it differently? Or do you think that there is something there? It's a great question. I think over the years I've reconciled culinary school in a, in a very particular way for myself. Yeah. One, I wanted to get a college experience. So for me, finding this marriage between Johnson Wales as a university where I could actually earn degrees, but also get my culinary education was really enticing for me to kind of get it all taken care of without elongated programs. College, college education or college experience? <laughs> well said. Both, I think. Both. Yeah. I mean, at that time in my life, I mean, you're going, I'm you know, December birthday, so I'm going to college when I'm like 17, you know, at that point, was looking for a college experience, looking for that aspect of it for sure. But listen, I think culinary school just like anything else, what you put into it is what you get out of it. Yeah. Is it an entry into the industry that's necessary? Absolutely not. The way that I always equate it, it teaches you a certain amount of vocabulary. Was I 
more prepared for my first job because I went to culinary school versus not going to culinary school? Probably because I knew what a stock was versus a broth. I knew what Brunois was versus Julienne. Like there was a certain part of it that I couldn't understand to get going. But listen, can you pick it all up along the way if you don't have the means to kind of go through that entry? 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I go, I'm kind of 50 50 on it too. I think most of the value in culinary school is in the network. When you're paying to go to culinary school, you're not paying for the education. I mean, you're right. getting the education, but really the value in that is the network you're getting access to. If you bust your ass mm-hmm. and your teachers like you, mm-hmm. uh, and you show up and you do the work, and they will open doors for you. And I think that's the value in it for sure. I could agree with that hugely. I yeah. mean, I think before you choose a culinary school you go to, like doing the research to make sure that it's going to open the doors that you want is really important, right? Because a random, not to call them out, but like a random Le Cordon Bleu program in the middle of America versus, you know, going to a spot here in New York City or like I did with Johnson & Wales where I knew some of the teachers had come from Keller's Kitchen, Boulud's Kitchen, you know, at the time Boulay's, you know, there was connections and lines that were already drawn from where I was going into school to where I wanted to get to out of school. Is it a coincidence that you got your internship at per se? Like no coincidence whatsoever. That was, I had honed in on a particular teacher at school who I knew had come from the French laundry earlier in his career. Um, I knew going through the program at Johnson and Wales pretty, I wouldn't say totally early on, but I was able to figure out my way of where I, where I was going to go with what I was learning and what I was kind of picking up at school. So I knew I went through, to start out with this, I went through the culinary associates program. So culinary arts degree associates at Johnson Wales, my first two years, then I did culinary nutrition for my second two years, uh, which was my bachelor's. It's a three-year-old program at the time, the culinary nutrition program. So you got to really turn into whatever was going to kind of put you down the right path you were looking for. A lot of kids were doing uh, medical nutrition therapy, trying to become dietitians. Other people were doing research uh, to become R and D chefs for big corporate groups. I knew that I wanted to cook. I knew R&D was probably going to be the direction I wanted to go in. Not that I use that in any capacity later on in my life. Um, But I knew going into higher-end dining, I wanted to cut my teeth. I wanted to learn how to properly cook. And I had found this one particular teacher who had come from, as I said, French Laundry. It took me a year and a half of kicking it with him after class, doing extracurricular events, sous-chefing with him, and just kind of hanging around him. To prove that, in essence, I wasn't going to embarrass him yeah. when he made that phone call for me, if he decided to make that phone call for me. And this was not a formal externship site. This was a phone call from a teacher who trusted me and said, I'll call up the guys over at Per Se, knowing yeah. that I'm from the Jersey, New York area, to help open that door for me. Yeah. Uh, and I think one thing that's unique, you, you were straight out of high school. You went to culinary school, right? 100%. You, yeah. yeah. So that's a big difference from you and other people that I interview. Most people who get the most out of culinary school are like 24 you know, I understand that. <laughs> yeah. Like they're older. I like think younger people just get distracted by the, the college experience, yeah. you know, like you're, you're still wet behind the years. You're out of high school, but I feel like older guys and gals get that shit out of their, their system. Right. And they, and they take it more seriously and it kind of expedites their, their career path. Um, so you get into per se, what was it like? I know. I mean, I'm sure you're, you weren't, yeah. you're not on like first name basis with Thomas Keller today, <laughs> but like, did you get any of that? Like, did you, did you, I did. So I, I was part of the team over at Per Se at a really interesting time yeah. in its life. It was its second anniversary. So we talk about how old and how long it's been around for at this point. I was there when French Laundry was still number two on the San Pellegrino list. Per Se was sitting there at number six. So it was, as I said, second anniversary, brand new on the scene. Times Warner building had really just opened up the whole food area um, not too long ago. 
And it was intense. It was everything that I was looking for from, you know, staying up late and reading every Thomas Keller book and get my hands on and really wanting to establish at a really early part of my career, just the baseline of how good it can be. And I was blown away. I mean, I worked my tail off. Um, it was like six days on 12 to 14 hours a day, just like the grind, um, everybody would expect. But I mean, going inside of there and seeing how different it can be at this point in my career, I already worked at a ton of different restaurants around Providence, Rhode Island. I had done a bunch of restaurants during my summers in between, um, back in Jersey before I was going back to school. So I'd already kind of cut my teeth in smaller shops, uh, where you can really touch every aspect of it. And this was my first time being part of a really massive brigade. You had your area that you were hyper-focused on as an extern there. I had my core responsibilities that I was responsible for service every day, whether you know I started out in the meat-cutting room working with a guy named Ruby, who I remember the, the old goal was if I could do one for every two that he did, I was on pace, meaning he deboned... You know, two chickens, I could debone one chicken and I'm good. No, how long was he there though? What, what was that muscle memory? Like? Oh my God, that muscle memory was incredible. <laughs> yeah. This is a guy who can like, you know, debone a rabbit into sleep and getting around those V bones that are inside those wings is like a nightmare for a person <laughs> who's never done it before. Uh, so really like establishing that baseline of how good it can be done and just the level of respect was something I never really had been a part of before. What I mean that is, you know, Chef Jonathan Benno, who was our executive chef at the time, he's calling me Chef Kirshner. You know, he's coming around saying, chef, how are you doing with everything? Like, where are you at with your prep list each day? And this aspect of calling each other chef, you know, looking a particular way, keeping yourself pressed, primped, groomed, and just taking so much pride in what you're creating at the smallest level. I mean, the old stories of Keller, you know, being on his own hands and knees, polishing the brass pipes at the end of the night kind of speaks volumes to how intense it can be. I mean... Every other week, we're taking toothbrushes to the hinges of the fridges and the reach-ins to make sure everything's in pristine condition at all times. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about um, Charlie Trotter recently came out with that document. Well, he didn't come out with it. Somebody did a documentary on him. Um, and it kind of it showed his passion. It showed – I know we're not talking about Thomas Keller. We're talking um, – Charlie Trotter, we're talking about Thomas Keller. But I'm curious um, – I feel like the industry has this, this bad habit of like lifting people up uh, who are d- definitely impressive individuals, right? Mm. Who have discipline, who are just really impressive. But at the same time, there's some like negative side of sh- the, the industry that you don't, that never gets the spotlight. True. And a lot of that came out of that documentary, uh, Love Charlie. Do you see it? I haven't seen it yet. I got to check it out. So it gets into kind of how he was an, an asshole and how he treated yeah, people like I've shit. I've heard those stories. That, yeah. was, that was like my generation coming up through those kitchens. You don't hear about that kind of stuff with Thomas Keller though. Um, was it the same? And like it's coming out in the story right now with like um, how people would call you chef. It kind of reminds me, I think they did a really great job with that movie, The Bear too. Absolutely. Uh, did you watch that one? By yeah, the show yeah. on Hulu. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but what were there things reflecting back that like not to like pulling anybody's name? I think mm-hmm. the industry is evolving. We're getting better collectively. Definitely. But is there is there a dark side of it? There there absolutely is. I mean, when I was at Per Se, I'm really proud to say that it wasn't a lot of that. I mean, there was definitely some screaming that went down. You would get berated if something happened, and I've got my own stories of I actually got carpal tunnel surgery on my right hand the second that I was finished with my internship and my right hand was so just, internship. Yeah. Damn. And it wasn't just as a relation of that. I'd already been working for a good <laughs> okay. four, four or five years across the industry, but they say genetically speaking also oh, okay. it kind of plays into yeah. it. But you know, there was one day where, 
you know, a reduction of shrimp stock, which took easily like three days to put together. I'm like pulling it out of a reach in and all of a sudden my hand just kind of gives way because the muscle was so atrophied at that point. Oh, man. And I spilled it literally all over myself and all over the floor. Oh, how'd that go? Not well. <laughs> I bet. So these things come up, you know, but I mean, I have stories that go back to other kitchens that I worked in where, you know, the chef who was running the pass, and this is a very, very busy casino restaurant kind of in my history. Um, you used to use butter knives to kind of hold his group of tickets on the pass that he was kind of firing off. Then the rest would be on the rail kind of going down the side. And let's just say those butter knives were not only holding down his tickets, they were also his weapons to kind of keep us moving as fast as we possibly can. <laughs> These are butter knives. <laughs> At least they're butter knives. And to hear a ding on your station when it's like, Kirshner, how long for that chore to come down? Yeah. You're like, two minutes, chef. I need that in one minute. And you're like, all right, death threat hurt, chef. And it kind of gets a little intense from that point on. So yeah, I mean, that's how the industry, it's, it's not... I think there was a moment in our history where it was really glorified. There was this aspect of we're coming in as kind of very undisciplined kind of messes of people, as most chefs seem to be typecasted as. And it took this extreme militant, almost discipline to kind of get everybody on the same page. And I'm glad we progressed so much kind of as an industry to see that, like, it doesn't have to be done that way. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be done at the cost of your life, your self-esteem your mental health yeah you know your sacrifice your family and like we we give the new generation of, of professionals a lot of flack and a lot of shit for like being such pussies <laughs> but at the same time yeah it's like thank you for being such a pussy yeah. because you're, we're making a bet we're making progress you know i'm joking around obviously no but of course but if the industry is going to survive and push forward we need to figure out a better way to do it yeah because they're just not going to put up with it anymore. Yeah, uh, but it's good. I think it's like it's good. You know, it's it's like it like the the where we've developed such a negative reputation as a, a career path that like people are finally like, and it's more public than ever before. Mm-hmm. That I think it's it's finally starting to catch up with us, and it's forcing us to really prioritize what matters: our ego or taking care of our people and like creating exactly. like a, a good career path. So, um, I mean, you've worked for such great. Like your pedigree, like you, you have such great pedigree. The people you've gone to work with, Daniel Balud, um, you, you were part of an opening of a restaurant that was uh, a nominee for uh, D- James Beard Best New Restaurant in America. Um, there's so much to unpackage, man. I don't <laughs> even know where to start. And Michael Mina, we can't skip over that. No, definitely not. So, reflecting back in order, you're with Michael Mina, uh, you're with yep. David Drake, and then you were with uh, Daniel. You, I did two years or a year at uh, W Hotel. Yeah, I opened up the W here in Hoboken. And then you were with Daniel Balud's restaurant for what, like a year or two years? Uh, a little over two years, about two and a half years. Or his, uh, what was it, uh, Balud's? I was a sous chef at Balud's suit. I'm sorry, I was a sous chef at Bar Balud. And then during my tenure there, I got promoted up to the private dining chef. When we took when we opened up Balud's suit and opened up Epicerie on the corner of Lincoln, right across from Lincoln Center. And then I became the PDR chef for all three restaurants. Got it. So... Where does it make sense? I mean, going chronologically, yeah. Uh, like, but before we get into it, like, where should we spend most of our time? Where did you evolve and transform the most as a professional? Um, so it was definitely those early years. I think transitioning from uh, my time at Michael Mina's Kitchens to what I was doing at the W, and then into the Danielle experience. That was like the thick of my restaurant life, where I kind of went from you know cook on a line to manager and sous chef, and kind of understanding the yeah. the bones of the business, and then. It was like, as I got out of my Danielle life and started working for Tasting Table, that's when there was this big turn. I was so, all of a sudden, I like, I joke around, but it's almost like I saw the light, you know? Yeah. And that light was a bay window of a private dining kitchen in Soho, New York. Mm. So let's focus on, I mean, any lessons from Michael Mina? And like, yeah. I don't want to skip over that, but it sounds like the transition from, 
you said it was, there was a transition from like working the line to management, and then mm. the other transition was when you saw the light. So let's right. focus on those two transitions. Yeah. So my time with Michael Mina, um, this was my job at a culinary school. You know, one of the as we talk about access points, things like that, job fair, right, happening at Johnson Wales towards the end of my senior year. I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, and the Borgata was there recruiting for restaurants in Atlantic City. There was a new wing opening up in the Borgata. Wolfgang Puck's opening up a restaurant. Michael Mina's got a restaurant. Bobby Flay's putting one in there. And I had already, you know, done my internship at Per Se. I had previously worked in Scottsdale, Arizona um, at a big hotel, a bunch of restaurants throughout New Jersey as well. And I'd already kind of tapped into what that hyper over the top fine dining was going to be like. And I had gotten some really amazing advice uh, when I was at Per Se from Chris Lamadou, the executive sous chef over there. Lamadou had also come from Michael Mina in his background. He was at, I'm pretty sure, Michael Mina's flagship out in San Francisco for a majority of his career. And when I was, I remember when my internship was coming to a close at Per Se, I actually got a job offer. It was the time when the HACCP program and sous vide was getting cracked down in New York City. I had done a 25 page research paper, which was like my senior internship project at Per Se, which was used as part of the bones of not only establishing their HACCP plan, but actually. Uh, Chef Benno had given me, just a fun kind of side story, Benno had given me the original manuscript for Under Pressure, Keller's sous vide book, okay. and was like, I want you to structure your paper the way that we're structuring this book, as they were in the middle of writing it, and see if there's maybe a potential you know, for some overlap or some use for us through this. And that was the whole bones of this project. Johnson Wales was like, do something that benefits you and benefits the place you're at. Mm. And that was like the bones of what you had to go down the pathway of. Lamadou had basically said to me, he goes, we're not a real restaurant here. He goes, yes, you could come work here. You could take the job that Chef Benno offered you. Um, first off, I should say when Benno offered me the job, he went, I have something I want to talk to you about. And he goes, when are you graduating from culinary school? I go, I have one trimester left, so three more months. He goes, okay, nothing then. And gets up and starts to walk away from the table. And I'm like, chef, chef, like, what are you, what's going on? And he goes, well, I was going to offer you this position as I just laid it out. But he goes, but I'm not going to because I know you'll say yes and you have to go finish school. Uh-huh. He's like, you made it this far. Go finish. We're always going to be here. If you want yeah. to come back, make a phone call. We'll figure out a way to get you back in the mix. Yeah. Lamadou pulls me on the side and basically goes, we're not a real restaurant. And if you come back to us, you're going to be stuck in the Comey kitchen for the next two years because you don't see the resumes we get. We're getting the best resumes from the best line cooks and chef de parties from around the world that want to work here. And where have you worked? Like you're going to be cutting tomato concasse for the next two years if you come back here. He goes, go work at a real restaurant, a place that cranks a place that does real numbers, a place that actually generates money, a place that you can actually understand what this industry is about, not lava land. You just hit on something that I think is really important. And I was hoping it would come out a place that actually generates money. I yeah. think this is probably one of the biggest issues with our industry mm-hmm. is that we look at the French laundries, the per se's, the, and I'm not, I'm not beating up on Thomas Keller. No. Like he's, he's been very successful. It's a business model that works for very few people. Absolutely. And you need the Michelin stars of the world, the James beards of the world mm-hmm. to get up on your shit in <laughs> order for that to be successful. Here's the thing. There's only so many stars and so many awards to be handed out. Right. And there's a lot of, amazing people doing amazing food out there, but there's just not enough awards to go out. So unless you're winning those awards, you're not going to be successful. And there's this issue with our industry where we are all like looking at people like Thomas Keller or I'm just like Charlie Trotter, Danny Meyer. I mean, Danny has more practical concepts. But you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. But we're creating the epitomes of Yeah, like we have a bunch of really fancy, beautiful, unprofitable restaurants out there. You know, it's an issue. Yeah, and obviously, I'm just a Comey. I can't speak to yeah. their books, but the stories that 
I've heard throughout my like career is just like a lot of these restaurants are break-even restaurants. They're, they're not real restaurants. They're not real restaurants. They, they make serve their money an, on the media. They serve an incredible purpose, right? Yeah. The purpose is to you know keep up with fine dining, to push the agenda of culinary cuisine on the world map, and and really just challenge what our notions are of eating and dining and all of this. And it's all beautiful and it's all inspiring as hell. Um, but yeah, when you talk about running an actual business that you know, the old idea of the chef owner could start. I mean, it's really hard to do that and try to actually maintain the margins, maintain the staffing Take levels that you people. need to actually have a, a, a life that's able to be led in a balanced way yeah. in some capacity. Yeah. And um, this is a big part. So the mission statement of this podcast is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And this mm. is part of that transformation part of like, listen, like when I first started this podcast, I would only interview James Beard nominees and winners mm-hmm. and Michelin stars. And I, and I, in my mind, I thought I was doing the right thing. I was like, right. this is how we transform the industry. We inject integrity into the food and blah, blah. Then I started to realize like, Oh shit, like this isn't that great either. Mm. You know? Um, which is why now I only talk to people who my guests tell me I should talk to. <laughs> I love like, that. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, but like, I just want to make sure that that echoes. If you're listening to this and you have aspirations of winning, a, there's more to life than awards. hundred percent. Yeah, sorry to, uh, that went no. way too deep into a rabbit hole for you. Important lesson, though. <laughs> yeah. absolutely important lesson. But was that the, the lesson that you distilled when he said, "Let me pull you aside and tell you like this isn't a real restaurant"? Yeah, it was. I need to go. To speak frankly, I need to go get my ass kicked on the line yeah. somewhere. I need to go be a part of a place that doesn't serve a hundred people a night with like forty people on staff. Yeah, you know, or the hotline is like fifteen or something yeah. like that. You know, it's they're not real numbers. Like, how do you crank? So that first experience with Michael Mina boils down to that. Um, I got a good offer. It was part of a union. So I got a better hourly rate than I would have if I just came back to New York city to go just cut my teeth in a tiny, you know, lower East side restaurant or join another kind of temple of gastronomy. And I also love what Michael Mina was doing. He's his angle was really unique, bringing Egyptian and middle Eastern flavors into this fine dining spectrum. Um, and to get a taste of that on the East Coast when his whole world and kind of infrastructure was out West, I thought it was an awesome opportunity. Uh, so I had moved down to Brigantine, New Jersey, kind of got this job at the Borgata and started cranking. And listen, that's where I learned how to do 500 covers a night, you know, with a team of, what is it? One, two, three, four. You know, you probably have about 12 to 15 on the line. So it's almost the same amount of people working the service at per se, but we're doing 500 plus covers a night in a really intense matter. Plus we're doing tasting menus. Michael Mina had just released his cookbook. So we're doing the cookbook tasting menu. Catering. I'm sure. Yeah. PDRs. Exactly. Off the side of the dining room. Um, and also getting to be in this kind of awesome environment. So who doesn't want to be, you know, 21, 22 years old and working in a casino that you can also party in while you also work all day. So, you know, it was, it was a great balance, but that was really where I learned to kind of get my ass kicked hardcore in a line. I, I, was asked to kind of join the the mercenary team of sous chefs for Michael mm-hmm. Mina. Traveled around a little bit, doing some restaurant openings with the group before. Um, didn't really want to kind of set up shop out in Detroit, which was where we were doing some openings at the Motor City Casino out there. And made my way back to David Drake, um, who was opening up a restaurant in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I had previously spent some time with him one of the summers in between college. And that's where... You know, we opened up Daryl Wine Bar in the Heldrich Hotel in downtown New Brunswick. I did see there was an overlap. You were with Michael Mina t- till 2008, and then 2007, you were with Drake. And I was right. like, how the hell was he pulling that off? Yeah, so it was like two turns. So basically, yeah. you know, I had, we, I'm sure we'll unpack a little bit of my mentors and kind of some of that track record uh, down the road a little bit. But I got connected with David Drake through a previous chef I had worked for. First, I spent a summer with him at his namesake restaurant in Rawway, New Jersey. Again, this was probably between junior and senior year of college. 
Um, and I had had restaurant jobs throughout my time up at school, but the whole town kind of empties out come the summertime. So most of them kind of let everybody go and they restock the following year. So I'd always get these jobs back at home. The question was always, what's the best restaurant I can get to from my parents' house? And at that time, it was like, open up a Zagat guide and just see what's accessible. Um, so with David Drake, I had worked with him at that restaurant, restaurant David Drake's in Rawway for that extended period. And then it was kind of circle back after my trips with Mina and everything else had happened. Uh, to open up this restaurant at the Heldrich Hotel. Nice. Um, so one big <clears throat> lesson, too, I think working in restaurants is one thing. Opening restaurants is another thing. Was that part of your strategy of like, hey, I mean, I know you don't own a restaurant right. today. But was that part of your strategy to like know how to open restaurants? Was that, Or did you just get forced into this opportunity? So it's funny that those were the opportunities that just kind of kept coming up in front of me. And there was something for me that was really intriguing about building something and establishing something versus just being a part of it. Uh, so from opening up Michael Mina's restaurant at the, um, what you call it? At the, at the Borgata to then joining the team to open up, um, Drake. Yeah. to open up Drake over at Dower wine bar. I love the idea of establishing something and really being able to put our, our thumbprint on it. So I think I was just kind of finding these opportunities and I've always been an operator kind of builder mentality, uh, so it was just, it was really intriguing to me to really kind of put my footprint, you know, really on this. So what kind of liberty did you have in being a part of the actual yeah. vision of this? Or were you just basically executing orders? No. So I came in as a sous chef and Drake at the time who, you know, we already had a rapport going for a few years. He had hired a gentleman to come in who was the executive chef of the hotel as Drake was running um, his namesake restaurant still on a full-time basis. I was brought in really as the one with deeper restaurant experience to help establish the systems in the kitchen and really run the crew. Um, and my executive chef was overseeing the business, the finances, the vision of the menu, you know, overarching kind of higher level thinking with a lot of the aspects. We came together to execute and, you know, service on a nightly basis. Um, and it was very much a team effort across the board. But my thumbprint was very much on plating, execution, flavors, some kind of tweaking of recipes, and just bringing what was kind of the high-level thoughts into fruition, kind of Got on it. the hotline Got every it. night. Let's move to where you think you evolved the most yeah. as a professional. But I don't, if there's something that I don't want to like skip over something, no, no. so don't let me do that. So where do you think that was? Like Get to that point. So you spent some time with Drake, two years. Uh, and then after that, it was with Danny Balud, I believe. Uh, no, so we jumped over the W. Oh, that's right. The yeah. W. Go ahead. So basically, you know, 2008 rolls around, financial crisis. I got laid off from my job with Drake over at the hotel um, and the restaurant at Daryl Restaurant. Um, and I found myself kind of figuring out what my next opportunity was going to be. My old pastry chef from Daryl Wine Bar and Restaurant had joined the former executive sous chef, a gentleman named Troy Unruh, over at the new opening of the W Hotel in Hoboken. She basically recruited me to say, hey, they're looking for sous chefs. Uh, Troy's a great, a great guy. can learn a lot. He comes from Del Posto, and Del Posto was like the epitome of Italian, you know, gastronomy in New York yeah. city. And I was like, this sounds like an awesome opportunity. Plus convenient enough. I was living in Jersey city at the time. So we're talking about in my backyard, my commute to work would be 10 minutes. Nice. Had never since my early days, um, coming up in my internships, I hadn't worked at a proper hotel or seen what a massive operation looks like. And going back to that original theme of, I love opening things and trying to figure out what these new systems are like. This seemed like an even bigger puzzle for me to really be able to tackle. Came in there as a sous chef, and now we're talking about a restaurant that could seat 140 um, with five total revenue centers across the whole property. Two bars, in-room dining, banquets happening on the main floor, and everything happening inside the restaurant as well. Um, you know, So a lot of moving pieces to this. And all of a sudden, I found myself going from being the executive sous chef of a team of about 
probably 10 over at Daryl Wine Bar to now we have about 45 people on our crew that we're overseeing. And it's P&L meetings. And it's running a business. And the company that oversaw the contract of the hotel from the food service side was a group called Cornerstone Restaurant Management Group. They held the rights to basically all the Michael Jordan steakhouses across the country, minus, I believe, the one in New York City. But they had a big um, hotel restaurant presence. So I thought, again, here's a huge new opportunity to learn infrastructure, you know, a little bit more of a corporate setup. And I had never experienced that before, so it felt like a really unique opportunity. So what were the biggest changes? What were the biggest lessons you got from that experience, that corporate, that corporate structure? So I think just the word is structure. Like, there was a process for everything, yeah. whether it was... You know, somebody screwed up on the line and you want to discipline them. It wasn't just screaming at them across the line, sitting them down. You do coach and counsel sessions. You're recording notes inside the centralized system as the manager every night. Um, my skill set was being more utilized to organize the team and grow cooks and establish something way larger than myself than it was about just being on the hotline and cranking service yeah. every single night. What's the significance of recording everything in the, on a log? Why is that? What's the power in having that? Like, what do you get out of that? I think it's about track records. I think it's about establishing one routine. Then you could see the progress of people. And sometimes, you know, say it's just in terms of the recording of um, how your team did on a nightly basis. When you're recording, you can actually see patterns, how people behave you know, things that occur that, you know, maybe in the heat of the moment when somebody does something wrong, you just want to lash out at them about that one thing. When you start actually understanding that there might be a track record of different spots that maybe you need to focus on to grow them, I think it starts helping you see through a lot of the fog in people um, when it comes to kind of growing your team in a big way. Yeah. I think on the other side of it, there's this idea of also just transparency of service. Um, we were a corporate group. There were people that were managing us that were in Chicago, and there was this aspect of we need to be able to show our bosses how well we're doing and how well our restaurant is doing yeah. or what struggles we're potentially yeah, having Yeah, well, there's well. the, the simple communication, exactly. right? When you have a big company, like you can't rely on word of mouth. You have to right. document things. Uh, you have data now. You can see, you can track progress or yeah. like the opposite of progress. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think the other big part of this too, which is kind of the dark side of it, is you can cover your ass. Yeah. When somebody, like, because like people, as big, big corporations get sued a lot for like, Un, like like what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not unlawful, but like maybe unlawful. Like yeah, but whether it's like work whatever. environments or when it gets down to a place where it becomes your word against somebody else's word, having a track record of paperwork, yeah, to protect yourself to cover your ass yeah. in certain situations is vitally important. Yeah, and like if you have a record of saying I told them like four months ago that this yeah. was an issue, I told them again three months ago that it was an issue, and I told them again they're like. Well, all of a sudden, Last you just week. built an unemployment case for, like, exactly. for letting somebody go. But like, it, yeah. but it protects you from that person being like, "I didn't know." Like, this is unreal. Exactly. Or, or what's the word? Like something, uh, some un something like termination or un whatever. Like, I people, think it's unlawful termination. Is, it, is yeah. that what it is? Unlawful so termination. Yeah, yeah, it's like you know, there's this aspect of at will employment that you can let people go. Generally speaking for many different reasons, but you need to give them the opportunity to be successful in their role. And that's yeah. typically what an unemployment conversation but Having comes this up. record, having this log covers your ass. I tried, I tried, yeah, I tried. They knew, I told them, <laughs> exactly. I did not come out of left field It's with important. This. It's really yeah, important it for your own important. protection. Yeah. But really, when it comes to like the transformative time, I mean, that was so much of what it was. In that moment, standing there at the pass, at the W, you know, sending food up to in-room dining, cranking out banquets and weddings, you know, and running this restaurant that I actually, for the first time in my career, had influence over the menu. I could run specials. I could change the menu up as I saw fit. 
And, you know, some things that happened within the restaurant, my executive chef had been let go. I became actually at 25 years old, the acting executive chef of the W Hotel here in Hoboken. It was kind of crazy at the time. My director of operations for the entire company had flown out to spend, you know, a few months with us uh, while they were trying to find the new chef. And there was a conversation about me taking over as the full chef at that point. But there were some commitments that they were looking for on my side that didn't really jive with what I was looking for for the next five plus years out of my life. And I found myself in a place where I actually had a lot of responsibility and it was more than just like the responsibility to put out the best food possible. It was responsibility for that responsibility for these people's lives, uh, for their, you know, scheduling them appropriately, making sure that we're giving them, you know, the means to take care of their lives. And I think there was this aspect for the first time in my life where I was like, Oh wait, I'm actually sitting at the precipice of like keeping these 45 plus people employed, happy, you know, meshing well in an environment, creating a culture that's going to actually be productive. And I am pivotal in kind of influencing how all that's going to come together. Were you given the culture or were you putting the responsibility to create the culture? At that time, I was putting the responsibility to, to carry forth the values and yeah. core aspects that were established by my company, yeah. but obviously through our own vision, right? Because yeah. so much can be on paper, but it's really about how it's put into practice, yeah. you know, on a daily basis. You know, yeah. again, going back to our conversation before, are you throwing butter knives at somebody because they <laughs> burnt the pizza? Yeah. Or are you like doing one of those quiet kind of daddy disappointed conversations? Let's go to the, let's, let's step aside where no one can hear us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so what, I mean, any other big lessons, key evolutions, key mentors mm-hmm. before we talk about this, this light that you saw? Yeah. I mean, coming up through my career, my first mentor I had was a guy named Anthony Bucco. Um, so Chef Anthony Bucco at the time when I came to him was actually goes back to that first story I was talking about opening up a Zagat guide. Yeah. So this was the summer after my sophomore year of college, came back to Jersey, wanted to get back into a restaurant to stay you know, busy all summer uh, with a proper summer job. And I found Anthony Bucco at stage left in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Okay. Um, this is a place that had Relay and Chateau, you know, four star this, five diamond that, you know, every accolade that you could have. It was a proper kind of Italian inspired, but very fine dining restaurant. Went in there for an interview. Um, you know, it was the old days of like, you know, fucking new guy. And, you know, he would eventually when he gave me the position, you know, he would give me a, I had asked for a chef coat one day being like a very green cook that didn't know any better than like, I'm not getting a chef coat with my name on it. Like this is like my first ever line job. Wait, I, you wanted your name on it too? I was like, did you don't ask I get, for the name? I, I think I might have asked for the name at that point. I think it was a little embarrassing to say, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> he goes, yeah, no problem. I'll have something for you tomorrow. And I come into like a potato sack with like a head, like a neck cut out, sleeves cut, and it said FNG for fucking new guy. Kind of thought <laughs> it. And I was like, you get to wear this now for the rest of the week. <laughs> That's great. I love that. <laughs> uh, Babuko, he interviewed me, asked me what I was looking for. You know, I'm like, I'm not looking to get paid. I just want to work, you know, stay busy this summer. And he was like, well, I don't really have space for you because he had a couple guys that have been working with him on the It was basically a team of five that worked the line every night. Two of them had been there for 20 years. I think he inherited them from the last chef who was running the restaurant. And then it was like him and his sous chef and a dishwasher. He was like, I'm going to put you on the line. You're going to work my station. And all of a sudden, I'm working fish now at this like high-end restaurant that I had been working at a beach shack like the previous summer and a couple stints up in up in Providence. Um, Anthony took me very much under his wing, taught me a lot of what it was all about, how to set up a station. And we're talking about the nitty gritty stuff, how to set up a station, how to carry yourself, how to get prepped, how to execute, how to work with Burmanese and, you know, execute awesome purees. And it was really the heyday of new American cuisine and, you know, everything that that was all about. 
Anthony was the one who introduced me to David Drake the next summer. It was one of those conversations at the end of my summer with Anthony where, you know, I always have a job for you. So just give me a call next year when you want to come back. Yep. Fast forward to next year. Hey, Anthony, I'm coming back home. I'm fully staffed. I don't have a job for you. <laughs> I wish we could say that today, right? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, but I have a friend, David Drake, who just opened up a restaurant recently over in Rahway. Let me put you in touch with them. Yeah. And I got to say, a lot of my life stems from those initial conversations because my time at restaurant David Drake was the first time I was exposed to sous chefs from formerly Boulay, Le Bernardin, that were some of David's old cooks from years ago that had come to help him open up his restaurant as really a favor for a few months. I started learning about New York City restaurant culture. I'm like 19 at the time. It got this thing stuck in my head that I need to go experience this for myself. That's where per se was like, this is my goal. The next year and a half, two years, I'm going back to school. I know where I want to go for my internship. And then it's just kind of like the cards start falling into place. So between Anthony Bucco, David Drake, really kind of being there for me at like a pivotal time in my life to help guide me along, um, really helps kind of set me down the right path yeah, in a big way. Yeah. So one of the things we mentioned, I think, very early on, maybe it was before the recording, that you took this very traditional path mm. to becoming a restaurateur. Was that always, did you always want to open a restaurant? Was that a goal of yours? No. So restaurants were honestly never, other than working in a restaurant, owning a restaurant had never been part of my plan. So what um, was your plan when you were first getting started? When I was first getting started, I'm like, I want to cut my teeth in restaurants. I want to learn how to cook the ins and outs of it. I want to get my butt kicked at the top restaurants I could possibly go to, to really learn my craft. Masochist? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> You're gone. I want to learn my craft to the nth degree. Like I want to be a chef, you know, inside and out. But I also knew the sacrifice that would come with it as my long-term career. And that's where this whole research and development idea, maybe a product developer down the line, like there was some corporate thing that after, this is my original kind of naive thoughts, after maybe the first 10 years of my career, there's going to be something I could pivot into that's going to give me the family life that I want but also let me still practice my craft. Yeah. I was never going back to culinary school. Truly was never the guy who was like, I want to own a restaurant. Mm-hmm. I had worked in restaurants. I know how I am in restaurants. And if I'm in a restaurant, I am all in. Yeah. And there's not really a lot of room for other aspects of my life. Yeah. And I wanted kids. I wanted a healthy relationship and I've already seen too many divorced, you know, not putting the kid to bed every night, like all the stories that we all are. So is this why you start with. pivoting, looking more towards the, the route of hotels because there's more stability. There was unions. There was a little more stability corporate. and all of that. But to be honest, at that point in my career, I was just looking for interesting opportunities and the restaurants within those hotels seemed like really good opportunities. And they were with chefs that I knew that I appreciated the W hotel came along because I really wanted to work for Troy and understand what life was like at Del Posto and doing Italian food was something that had spoke to me in a big way. And then basically, I think this will kind of get us to get us to that place. Um, they had hired a new executive chef, at the W him and I didn't see eye to eye. I had been told that I was going to be in charge of the restaurant, which is where I wanted to be at. All of a sudden I was getting stuck up doing weddings every weekend, um, up in banquets at that point in my life. I'm 25 years old. Wasn't what I wanted to do. It's what, it's not what I signed up for. Not what I signed up yeah. for him. And I also were starting to butt heads the way he ran going back to the conversation about culture. I'll talk a little, frankly, the guy actually had a big black dildo. Don't know if I can say that on the podcast. I've said worse. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that he used to keep in his desk drawer. And he's the guy who would sneak up behind people on the line and like hit them with it, you know, sneak in to scare the shit out of them with it. And it's just like, it wasn't my mode operandi. You know, no. it's not how I operate. What, not your thing? Oh, <laughs> not my thing, but also not to put people in those kind of situations, yeah, yeah. awkwardly speaking. Yeah. Um, we butted heads a lot. 
And it just wasn't healthy for me to be there anymore. That's where I was like, what's next? And I don't need to kind of go down this corporate route anymore. I'm still 25 years old. I just want to get back to cooking. And that's where I, I, you know, the old days of, I answered an open call from Dynex Danielle's restaurant group. I went, I got interviewed by Olivier uh, Mueller, one of the corporate chefs at the time. And he placed me in a chef de partie position. Uh, so I was basically saucier over at Barbalude. Okay. Um, and that's where I just kind of got back to the core of it. Just yeah. got back to cooking every day, being in there bright and early, grinding the whole thing. And that ran its course, right? So we get to this place of what's next, right? So what are you feeling in 2012 before departing uh, Bar, sorry, Daniel, Barbalude? Barbalude. Barbalude, sorry. Barbalude. So I was feeling burnt out. I was feeling exhausted. I was feeling I had been running events six to seven days a week at times, working 14 to 20 days straight. When I had events going on at the restaurant, that was my job. I was there to do them. You know, there were long days. It's the same story that, you know, all of our brothers and sisters and everybody within the industry goes through. But do that for two and a half years straight after a decade plus of restaurant life before that, I was exhausted. I was burnt out and I was trying to figure out what's going to be next in my life. Yeah. And to be honest, I was so burnt out and exhausted and kind of seeing foggy that I was looking at everything from corporate dining rooms, executive dining rooms. Maybe I just go work for compass group and just, you know, punch it, punch a little timesheet every day and just collect a decent paycheck, cook and just live my life, but actually get a life, you yeah. know, to some capacity. I got to say, I'm lucky. I answered a Craigslist ad. Okay. Um, Looking for sous chef for private dining room. Okay. And this is, this is uh, the tasting table. Yeah, this became yeah. tasting table. Um, I was thinking this is some executive dining room, law firm. You know, there are these like Shangri-La jobs where you get to cook for five people, a brand new tasting menu every day at some law firm or private equity firm somewhere. And you're just got like no budget. And I thought it was that. That'd be fun. Would be fun. Yeah. This was not that. <laughs> Uh, so this was in Tasting Table's heyday, right? We're talking about a food media company, um, same group that started Daily Candy and The Thrillist. It was the food wing of it. So they were doing food media production, but the CEO was really had a ton of foresight and you know, became a really good mentor for me over the years as well, Jeff Bartikovic. Um, foresight he had was that he wanted to do more than just talk the talk as a media company. He really wanted to have people come in and experience products, people, experiences in a different way. We're talking about like the heyday of experiential marketing when it really started coming to fruition in a big way. So I ended up getting this job as a sous chef. I had a private dining loft down in Soho. We could sit about 30 people around a big communal table. I had two floors I oversaw. Each floor could fit about 90 to 100 for cocktail parties. We do two to three events a week with our marketing partners, aka it's exclusive space. The only way you could throw events there is if you had a media buy with the company itself. And we would build events around whatever you're looking for, um, doing things from everything from the mango board to, uh, you know, the Land Rover. Land Rover's releasing a new car. They would send me the spec sheet of the car and say, I want you to write a menu inspired by the new Land Rover coming out. By the curves out. of this Land Exactly. You'd be like, the pop-up button looks like a scallop. <laughs> no, no, a scallop course. Um, but Talk the about other, creativity. Ton of creativity. <laughs> it was the first moment in my life. Talk about 
seeing the light. I, I'd say that kind of jokingly because we were on the second and third floor of a building down on West Broadway where we actually had bay windows. And yeah. it was the first time I think I saw the light literally out of a basement kitchen <laughs> yeah. in like eight years. It's crazy. But at the same time, you're also, this is the first time where you're getting into a non-traditional. 100%. Like you're not making your money off of like relationships with guests. You're making your money off of the media that you're selling and exactly um, like the contract with, like, I don't know how that. So yeah, word added value piece of that. They're yeah. doing a media buy to do advertising with the company and one of the things they then get is exclusive access to this space that you can throw then events for. So, so yeah, so you would have companies like Land Rover approach you and say, hey, we want to do an event. Mm. And Tasting Table's assets were the space mm-hmm. and the team to execute, the creative team to execute the food for that event. Exactly. But where was the cash? The cash flow was coming in. I'm sure that Land Rover was basically paying you for the space, but are you then creating, are they, they, do they own the media? Or? Yeah, so there was parts of, there's a lot of different parts to it. Um, they would get access to the videos that are shot, the photos that are shot during the event itself. They're able to bring in the people that they want to entertain at the event. We would also curate, and we had a whole communications team that I was a part of. So we're bringing in the influencers. This is like the beginning of the influencer culture. We're bringing in media outlets that we have relationships with. It's almost like an in house PR team. So we're all of a sudden now bringing exposure to our audience, right? And Tasting Table's audience at its heyday was about 3 million people across social media, newsletter distribution, et cetera. So we're talking about just like I think with a lot of this influencer culture going on these days, this was the beginning of it. Yeah. The Ugh. question is, how do I access all of your audience? And that's what Tasting Table, I think, was selling in a big way. Okay. Wait. The question was, how do I access? All? So how do I access your audience, Tasting mm. Table's audience? Got it. So you're paying not just for the, the event that's being executed, but the influence that you bring. Exactly, exactly. And now kind of displays the groundwork for what I created with DK, and also access to in-house culinary team that can create you an event around what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve. Got it. So we were not a catering hall or, you know, a venue that says this is the menu that we're doing for the month, the week, etc. Choose your canapes, choose your courses. We're starting with a conversation and saying, what can we do to make this work for you? How did Tasting table, Table help you see the industry different? I was now, as opposed to being kind of hidden away in the kitchen, I was now literally on the front lines of events with influencers, with media outlets, with consumers. I was interacting with them on a daily basis. Every time I throw an event, it was a massive open loft space down in Soho. So we're talking about people are in the kitchen, people are hanging around, I'm entertaining, I'm cooking, I'm putting out food. There's this whole balancing act that's happening here. But I'm seeing the value that chefs and just the culinary experience in its own right means to these people. And we would start building relationships with some of these people that would come to our events and they would be at every event. They were on the mailing list when we needed to fill a room. They were part of our, you know, access that we were giving and we'd see them every day or, you know, we would do events two to three times a week. So every time we throw an event, they would be there developing relationships. And that's what it is. I saw where we were really standing at a unique time in, our industry where yeah, chefs have already started to become celebrities and really had the value there. But to see how brands actually valued having a chef curated guided experience was something that was really eye opening for me. Yeah. And let alone the fact that we talked a lot about media brands that would be in the mix with this. Uh, Adam Sachs, who's a very well known food editor out there. He was our, um, ex- our editor in chief at one point at taste table during my time there. He brought relationships to the table with some publishing companies like Fiden. Uh, who, is, who publishes all the cookbooks for basically if you're on the top 100 San Pellegrino list and you have a cookbook coming out, finance your publisher. 
we were part of the media tour for all these new cookbooks. So we're talking about in a span of about six months at one point, Rene Redzepi, Ferran Adria, um, Michael White, uh, Batali, you know, uh, uh, chef from DOM, Alex Atala. You know, we're talking about some of the like the highest regarded chefs in the country were coming to my kitchen to do events. But they, you weren't cooking their food, were you? I was cooking their food. So were you using their recipes from the book and executing their food, or are they? Are you working as like an extension to their team? Depending on the chef, both. There were some chefs that would literally send me their book and say, you know your space, you know your crowd, choose recipes out of here that you want to do. And then the chef aren't typically showing up with their whole brigade by any means. They're showing up with like one of their chefs. Yeah. Then there's me and my full-time sous chef and my team of freelancers. And we would work with them for two to three days straight. Yeah, you're doing prepping. the lifting, they're doing the media stuff. They're kissing the babies, we're yeah. executing the food. Yeah. So it would be either that or like Alex Atala, never forget my conversation with him. <laughs> he says to me, frankly, you can't access any of my ingredients. They're from the rainforest. Yeah. There's no way you're going to get any of this in New York yeah. City. So why don't you just be inspired by my book and write your own menu? And we'll go with that. And it was like, cool. I looked into my own history. <laughs> I'm doing like different pastrami beef tongue things and tapping into my Jewish tradition with yeah. some of the elegance that we could bring to the table. And just this really amazing collaboration. So all of a sudden, I got to do reverse stages. I used to call them. Chefs coming to me that I would you know, pay an arm and a leg and give up my left toe in order to go kind of spend a day yeah. or two in their kitchen. Yeah. So you're opening your network, which probably is <clears throat> what sets you up for success for what you're doing now is because you're getting, yeah. you're just making, you're bumping up against all these people are coming in. You're just like filtering all these incredible talented people through your, your kitchen. It wasn't your kitchen. It was tasting tables, kitchen, yeah. but like you're, you're there, you're networking the power of networking. I think the other big takeaway is that you realize that it's, I'm not just cooking food. I'm creating experiences. And at the end of the day, people aren't Nailed just, it. people aren't making, like we are making food, but at the end of the day, you're not making money off the food. You're making yeah. money off how you make people feel. hundred percent. No yeah. matter what situation or environment you're serving your food in, you're performing your hospitality in. It's about that. It's about how you make people feel, how you get them to feel taken care of. And my time at tasting table allowed me to, as you said, make connections. I started getting asked by, People attending events, if I can come do dinners at their homes on the weekends. And it was also, Taste Table was the first time in my life. I was, for the most part, working Monday through Friday. We would do two to three events a week at night. I'm still working nights. But my prep day would be the day before from about 10 to 6, and I'd be able to come home. Yeah. So 2015, mm. you break off, and you say, I'm going to start my own business. When did this like strike you? When did you say, like... I'm going to do this. All right. So I am not going to give myself more credit than credit is truly due. I'm okay. a reluctant <laughs> entrepreneur. I, I, there's a little bit of falling into this. That I'm, a reluctant, I'm a reluctant influencer. So <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> so 2015 came around. Um, basically, Taste and Table was restructuring how they were running the business. Um, I ended up getting technically let go from my position. But then as an independent contractor... Asked if I want to continue my position. Mm -hmm. So in essence, as opposed to having to kind of go to work, even when we had weeks that didn't have events going on, now just getting hired event by event. I don't want to pay you when we don't need you. Can I just pay you when I need you? Nailed it. Yeah. Which gave me the opportunity then to start looking a little bit deeper into what are some of these side jobs that I can pick up. I didn't want to jump back into a restaurant. I knew that life, as I was talking about earlier. I wanted to try to chart a new path for myself. Um, one of the other things that I didn't really touch on, which is paramountly important in my life, uh, was during my time at, at Barbalude is when I met my wife, uh, who's not my wife. Uh, so we had become pretty serious with each other. 
part of that motivation, she's not an industry person. She works in casting. She's an incredibly talented casting director. Um, and part of our conversations were that this isn't going to be my life forever. And I didn't have that goal that my restaurant life, when she met me and was dating me, was going to be at all. And I, I owe a ton to my friends and my roommates at the time when my wife at the time, my girlfriend, would come over to the apartment and kind of kick it with them. So I'm coming home from the restaurant at like 2 in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. So there was this motivation to kind of figuring out things different to get that life I was going after. So my time at Tasting Table, when I got let go, I was living with my wife at the time. My girlfriend, actually, no, we had been married at that point already. And we were lucky enough to be in a one-bedroom, a small thing here in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, she had money coming in from her job. She was a little bit more stable, though she's a freelancer by trade also. Um, and it gave me a, a little opportunity to say, hey, I've got this side hustle work at Tasting Table happening now as a contractor. I picked up some work with some friends that would shoot uh, basically food media things. So our old creative director had started his own company. We were developing recipes and doing photo shoots for like the pork board, Chobani, things like that. So I started to like kind of pick up side hustle work around doing some parties on the side. And all of a sudden, just trying to piece together a world that I had some control over. Early on, it was this idea of like, how much money do I need to make in order to kind of satisfy my life? Yeah. And doing this freelance, I realized, you know, if I, if I was working like six days out of the month, that means if I prep day one and then execute the event day two, well, now I'm working 12 days out of the month. And actually, I'm making the money that I was as my salary before a tasting table. And that kind of was a bit of a light bulb that went off of like, Wait a second. this is a little bit cooler. I could work 12 <laughs> days a month, yeah. cook the food I want. And what I, was, what I had learned at tasting table was this idea of party planning. It was how do I work the client through a menu? I already was running this venue at Tasting Table, and I was in charge of the cocktails, hiring the servers. Now, actually, I think my communication team would help me with the servers, but we were vetting servers. We were yeah. running the teams. Like I knew the ins and outs of events and what it took to make them happen. So now it's oh, how could I do that in a client's home? And then it started kind of the wheels turning. I had gotten a job in the private chef world for a family in the Upper East Side for a bit during this stint while I was doing some of this event work. It was a couple days a week. Thought that was the life. Like maybe I go fully into private chefing. That lasted like three months. I get a message from the family that they were letting the assistant who they had hired two months before me, who had hired me, letting her go and also letting me go because they had some kind of financial troubles and they needed to restructure their own world. I started learning how at the mercy you are of a client when you kind of sign on board with the family full time when all of a sudden on a whim, they could say, you know, we're moving to London. And all of a sudden, your whole perfect world kind of falls apart. Yeah. Knowing that that was one avenue down the private chef world and having interviewed for a couple of private chef jobs and tried some things out, hearing some of the horror stories about private chef life is such a different world. You are so at the mercy of your client. It can be the perfect job or it can be literally worse than the worst restaurant you've ever been in. Yeah. You know, and it, it runs the spectrum across the board. So I saw like... When I was with that family, five kids below the age of 10, two adults, the kids were eating breaded something and fries every day. The dad was vegetarian. Mom was a different fad diet every other week. And I think after I got let go, I took this moment to be like, I spent all this time working for Danielle, per yeah. se, like yeah. honing my craft. Am I really going to spend the next 10 years, 15 years plus just making chili? <laughs> right? Like, it's a little beneath you. It's, it's yeah. I don't know if I would say beneath me, but it just it doesn't 
pull at my heartstrings the same way. Yeah. You yeah, know, it just yeah. doesn't inspire me to get out of bed in the morning the same way. So that was the end of your three month run of as a private chef. Exactly. Yeah. You so know. I think now's a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors and let's talk about when the light goes off and what the vision for your current business model came into frame. Mm-hmm. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. As host of Restaurant Unstoppable, I chat with a lot of restaurateurs. One thing a lot of them have in common, they use Seven Shifts. In fact, every restaurateur using Seven Shifts that I've come across has great things to say about them. With over 700,000 restaurant pros and counting using it today, they're clearly onto something. So what are you waiting for? Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor costs, and keep your entire team connected with drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, labor compliance, tip management, and more. It makes restaurant work a lot easier. And I bet Every member of your team will get value from it. Whether you're a franchise owner or a chief technology officer, a manager working in front of house or back of house, plus it integrates with other restaurant tech systems you already use like your POS, payroll, and more. That is powerful. As a restaurant unstoppable listener, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S.com slash unstoppable to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. We're back. And, um, you, you you brought us on this journey of how you transitioned out of the world of restaurants and hotels mm-hmm. to, to, to see the industry through a whole new lens, realizing it's all about experience. It's all about networking and connecting people and uh, just like, you know, like leaning into these strengths that you developed over the years. Yeah. Um, and, but when did, when did the, the light go on? Like when did it click to say there's a better way, there's a better business model? So it was about that time when I left that family. Um, I was kind of taking account of everything that my experience has kind of led up to at that point and where I was at and what was going to really fuel me for the next step. What I realized, there, there is this value. I had been working with so many PR companies during my time at Tasting Table. They were looking for chefs that they can work with to make menus and events around their own visions. I had connected with so many clients that also wanted you know, their ideas of what they were looking for for their events to come to life. I also knew that I had come from so many ego-driven, chef-driven restaurants over the course of my career where it's sad to say, but I think we've all experienced this, that it's so many times more about the chef, what they want to kind of put out on the menu to kind of represent themselves more than it is about putting out maybe what your clients are truly looking for. Yeah. And I, I never was fueled by the ego side of our industry. Um, and I realized that if I kind of go down this events road, I can really talk and kind of coax out of clients what it is that they are looking for, what it's going to help them really achieve those kind of perfect events and moments in their life. And I can use that as my fuel to be creative. You know, it gives me a bit of a framework to work within, right? The daunting aspect of a blank piece of paper. Give me a a challenge. Give me a, give me something that you're going for. Let me try to execute it. Exactly. And you know, at the time then had some friends that had a kind of small little marketing startup that they were working, creating websites for companies and whatnot. They helped me with my first website, kind of put my quote unquote digital brick and mortar together. Yeah. I was working out of my apartment and I started to build a bit of a network. 
You know, but you just mentioned something that's really good, and I think sorry to interrupt, please, but I just want to make please. sure that you heard that creating my digital storefront. Yeah, uh, I think today, I think for young people, I, I think it's actually as I'm saying this, I'm starting to realize that like it's starting to change. People, the younger generation is starting to realize that I don't need to open a restaurant to cook food. I don't Definitely need not. to go a million dollars into debt. To mm-hmm. open. I don't need to you know build. I don't need to spend ten years cooking for other successful people to build up a track record that a bank will write that check to me. You know, I can start today where I can, which is with the digital storefront, right? IE a website. Yep. IE $10, you know, like, I mean the magic, I think that we all learned through the pandemic as well. Like opening up a shop on Instagram, you know, just collecting orders through DMS. Like there's so many creative ways to just connect with people these days and get your food out there. Uh, yeah, it's powerful, but at the same time, I think it's a double-edged sword. Oh yeah, because there's a lot of dark sides to the internet too, and it scares the fuck out of me that th- like three Fair. companies run the world. You know what I mean? Like, that's <laughs> yeah. just not a good recipe. No, that's that's a, that's a recipe for a dictatorship. The truth, and that's what's <laughs> happening right now. But like under the radar, we're we are being dictated by algorithms. We're not even fucking aware of it. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? The bubbles. Yeah. So yeah, like, I don't know. I, I go back and forth, and yeah. there is a good side of it. There is a dark side to it. Absolutely. And most people talk about the good side, marketers and stuff like that. Mm. I'm all about letting people know about that dark side. Maybe. Yeah. I'm a, Oh, maybe I'm fucked up. Yeah, but, you um, got the masochist side on you. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know? uh, but sorry to interrupt. But I just no, want people good. to hear that. Like, you don't have to go the traditional route. No, uh, there's so much opportunity out there. Like we, uh, the one thing I like about the world we live in today is I think that the world is kind of being forced to level because before it was pay to play. Uh, like on, there were only so many media outlets, but now like the the channels of communication are being fragmented. It's not about who has the most money gets the message. It's about who has the best message gets the attention. You Absolutely. Know? Sorry to, to cut yeah. you short. Or to no, so really out. start out scrappy. And this, I think, is the story of, like, you don't need to go out there and get a bank loan out in order yeah. to, like, start a food business by any means. Start I was, a brand. Exactly. Leverage your network. You leverage your network. You you assess your resources. You say, who do I know? Who, how can I barter? And there's really ways to get that done. I had a ton of photography from my friend, um, Alyssa, who had done all the photography for our events at Tasting Table. She gave me access to those photos to help build my website out with. Um put that out there in the world and then started hustling. Mm. What, what did hustling look like at the time? Um, this phrase, which I don't know if it's an established phrase or not for me, it's always stood out. It's this term called gatekeepers. Okay. So I took so a strong I, assessment yeah. of my resources, right? I'm one person I'm cooking. I'm now trying to do sales. I'm also trying to set up accounting and trying to figure out how the hell to do QuickBooks, which I've never done accounting before. Again, let's remember culinary nutrition major out of Johnson and Wales university. Mm-hmm. No bashing on the education, but wasn't exactly fully prepared for the world. No. <laughs> um, so you're trying to juggle all these kind of different aspects. So what I realized was that if I'm going to really look at the amount of time I have to really get this grind together, as opposed to trying to find each individual client, let me find the people that have the clients, right? So I started basically pinpointing what I like to call, as I was saying, gatekeepers. You know, We're talking about party planners. We're talking about PR companies. We're talking about people that if I establish one relationship... That can now domino effect and cascade into a ton more relationships. You know, so it's about looking at the energy that you have to expel into this world and how you're going to put it to the best use for yourself. Yeah, and what's interesting is like there's no, like there's no two recipes that are exactly the same. Never. Like, you, the, like your experience in this world provided you with a set of opportunities and strengths that isn't that not everybody else 
has those same touch points, right? So that's one of the things like we're earlier, I don't know, I think it was before the recording we were talking about, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't freaking know anything. Yeah, it's so yeah, yeah. frustrating. Like Powerful. The more I learn, the more I realize how stupid I am. Yeah. You know, it's just like one the of those The world things. gets bigger and I realize <laughs> yeah. how little um, aspect of it I can actually comprehend. But like the cool thing at the same time is that, I don't know, now I'm, I'm losing my train of thought, is that like, don't be confined by that one path because there is no yeah. path that like, the, that's one of the things I've learned. There is no right way. There's just the way that makes sense for you based off of yeah. your unique experience in this world, the touch points and your strengths. And honestly, what you're willing to learn, yeah, I think is a big part of this. You know, I think if my story tells anything, it's going to tell that the skills that you collect over the course of your career are one thing. But listen, I don't know. How, I didn't know how to do accounting properly. I didn't know how to truly put together a a freelance based chef system with, you know, infrastructure and processes and systems, but you research enough, you put the effort into it, you grind, you kind of figure things out, you hit one obstacle, you figure out how to turn left or right to get around it. And you'll blow yourself away when you realize how much you truly are capable of. Just start. Just start. Just start. Just yeah, start. And, and let the momentum build. Yeah. And that's what you did. You just started and you said, I don't know how I'm going to go out there and build this huge client. Base, but no. light bulb frontal lobe was working. Yeah, Let trying me, to figure things out, yeah. right? Trying Who's to got the clients? I'm trying to find. Invent a path for yourself. You're literally like creating as you go, and then you realize, wait a second, I have this massive network of people who have access to all my clients. I don't need to know the client. I just need to know the middleman, yeah. the gatekeeper. Um, so it went from that place of realizing that this gatekeeper access could be what's up, to then just creating a community around myself. So I had kind of got in touch. So I started putting out the word to find chefs to help me out because parties were starting to get a little bit bigger and I needed extra help prepping. I had been running this freelance crew, at tasting table for the previous almost four years at this point where I was always hiring in a random group of kind of three to four cooks to help me out. And these cooks were typically chefs that had days off from, you know, their line jobs at restaurants around the city. I already knew how to kind of track these people down on like Craigslist and through friends recommendations and whatnot. So I started past working experiences, past working experiences. And that was a lot of the initial people I started working with were people that were in restaurants with me in previous jobs. Um, Started bringing them in to help me out. And then all of a sudden I started meeting other private chefs. All of a sudden we started sending each other out on jobs. Uh, This one guy, Greg Brown, who I've been very close with over the years. At one point I would get in calls from him, Dave, I'm tied up. Can you take care of this client on the Upper East Side this day? Yeah, no problem. Greg, can you help me out with this job? It's 25 people. I need an extra set of hands. Yeah, no problem. We start kind of putting each other out for jobs. You start meeting captains um, that are doing the service and bartending for clients in their homes and showing them you know, the food that you're putting out. And when you take your craft seriously, people notice that. All of a sudden, these captains and bartenders who privately work for these families started bringing me along to others of their clients and recommending me to those clients. All of a sudden, I land a client who's you know got a beautiful over-the-top home in Martha's Vineyard, and I'm doing... Um, dinners for them in their apartment by yeah. the UN that then, have like celebrities. Sitting and guess at who's dinners. showing up to those exactly. your future clients. Cause people of the same feather tend to flock together, you know? So this is where the big light comes in. Mike's my calendar is getting full. So at this point you're, yeah. you're kind of following a, a traditional model. You're a caterer and you're yep. pulling together your network to execute 100%. these events for people. hundred percent. Right? So you're not doing anything truly different. No, nothing point. different at that point. I'm basically a catering department, but from a private chef kind of angle. Yeah. Are you at this point dying DK? 
I am 90K. Been always 90K. That was kind of from day one. Um, my, my wife's best friend, Angie, who was the, the marketing folks, her and her. What does your wife do? I'm just curious. So she's a casting director. Okay. So she works. I was wondering if her, her unique ability kind of fed into your unique, unique ability. We're, we both constantly are called the unique, uh, what's called? We have the unique jobs out of like every friend group we have. Yeah. It's like everybody's got all these traditional kind of confines. We're the ones that are just trying to figure it's it out as we go. For. So she basically, her and her uh, boss and partner, Gail Keller, they are basically like the lead independent comedy folks that kind of run all of independent comedy casting across New York. So really? they're Judd Apatow's people. Uh, they used to be Louis C.K.'s people. Really? You know, so Amy Schumer, they do all of their projects. Something not a lot of people know about me is I have a little dream to be a comedian. Ah. I've never said that out loud <laughs> because I'm afraid. But uh, maybe in five, ten years, I'll, I'll be able to reach out to you. I'll be able to leverage mine now. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'll ever have the balls to do that. <laughs> Um, so they luckily, they got to do uh, Bros, the new movie that um, Billy Eichner that came yeah. out a couple months ago. Um, so they've got a kind of cool track on their own side. Nice. Yeah. So how did that, that, did she like help you with this idea of casting people? And like, so I could see the correlation really yeah. easily, but she didn't for that aspect of it. She helped me in so many other ways. And like, sorry, honey, you weren't that helpful. <laughs> no, so many ways that she helped me give me the freedom to actually yeah. pursue this, yeah. go down this pathway. But she's always been an amazing sounding board. Like she will always tell me frank opinions on kind of where I'm going, what I'm doing. And as you know, entrepreneur lifestyle is sometimes pretty lonely. Yeah. Like, you, you know, the biggest reason why I want to be a comedian. Sorry, I'm getting to me, please. No, it's me. because I feel like they have this freaking like, this like defense shield around them where they can push the envelope on thought mm. and say things that would normally get other people canceled. <laughs> and I just, I'm so jealous of that. <laughs> like I just want to be able to say things that should get me like completely canceled until you cross that line. Then you yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, like, but at the same time, I, I think it's important that we push the envelope on thought. Mm. And I think that's what comedians do. They serve. They're more than just they challenge funny. people. They yeah. challenge, they, they challenge popular belief, but they do it under the veil of comedy. So they get away with saying things that are very fucking true. I agree with that. And, yeah. and they, but they do it in a, it's a joke, yeah. but it's also true, but it's a joke, <laughs> you know? And I feel like I, I'm just so jealous of that because mm. I have to bite my tongue all There's the time. There's a lot of freedom that comes from that. Yeah, side, right? man. Yeah. I like, and I, I didn't feel like I could say so much more <laughs> and share so many more opinions if I was like, did it in a joke. Yeah. <laughs> That's Earth. the big reason why. Absolutely. Earth. Anyway, sorry, we're going down a rabbit hole. Um, coming back to your story, this yeah. idea you have this, the light goes off. I don't right. think the light, we, 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 we've talked about the light. We've addressed the light. We haven't seen the light yet. Here's the light. So the light goes off when I get to this place where, I started having to turn down business because yeah. let's go back to the original idea about this whole thing. That six day, six events a month, 12 days working a month. At that point, that was my goal, right? Reluctant entrepreneur. Wasn't this grandiose vision. I didn't raise capital. There was nothing about like startup lifestyle involved with this. Yeah. This was scrappy freelancing kind of at its finest. Um, I started pushing past that point where all of a sudden it was this idea of like, I could say yes to all these jobs and I'm going to be working just as hard and kind of grinding it the way that I used to back in the day in restaurants and yeah, I'll make more money, but all of a sudden now I'm sacrificing part of my life, which is this, that was really the goal, right? Mm -hmm. The goal was make enough money, have a good life and we're going to be there. I start saying no to clients. Maybe that builds a little rapport of like, Oh, we can't access him. And maybe that drives a little bit more interest. I kind of got a feeling it did, but then I start trying to figure out how do I say yes to these clients, but still maintain what I'm looking for out of my life started again, Assess your resources, right? Who's around you? What opportunities do you have around you? I have a lot of friends that are chefs. I have a lot of chefs that would be interested in getting a little bit of a side hustle game going. I already have cooks that are helping me, quote unquote, 
um, you know, quote unquote cooks, but people that are incredibly talented that have the personality to go in front of a client and make these type of experiential events happen. And that's always been the secret sauce really in my business is like, can you talk? Can you put on a bit of a show? Can you entertain people? Do you have a bit of the gift of gab? You do. Thank you. It's, it's flowing, bro. <laughs> uh, yeah, and all of that kind of comes together to this place where, all right, let me set up my friends for success on these jobs. Yeah, here's the light that's going off in my mind. This is the thing. It's like a bunch of stuff. Like, how do I? I this is one of the things where, like, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know anything. Because you go, you talk to people, and they're like, say yes to everything. Right. Say yes. Like, you take the meeting, mm. whatever, how many different ways you want to say it. Then you can turn, like, like, 90 degrees this way, and you look in this direction. There's a bunch of people that are like, Say no to everything. Right. Say no. Only say yes to the things that you want to do. Everything you say yes to is something else you have to say no to. I think the other big takeaway that I want to make sure our listeners are getting from, or you're saying, how much do I need to make to be happy? Not mm-hmm. like I want to be rich. Right. But what what's the what's the ideal life that I want? How much money do I need to make to get that ideal life? And how do I reverse engineer and only say yes to those things? Right. Hundred percent. So. Go ahead. There's a great theme of reverse engineering kind yeah. of setting this whole thing up because yeah. it is a lot about what's your definition of success, what's really going to make you feel satisfied and fulfilled in your world, yeah. and then try to like manifest that. And like, yeah. What's the best way to do that? Well, start just working backwards. How much do I have to make? How much do I have to charge then in order to get to that place? But kind of going back to this core of the light, well, I just started recruiting friends. Um, I had already taken over a small space. Um, inside the building we're actually recording in right now. It's kind of a mixed-use building. I was expecting to walk into your apartment. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? This, what? It's the other apartment. <laughs> so we're, in a, we're literally in a, like a develop, like a housing, or what would you call this? Yeah, place? so it's like a mixed-use facility over in Jersey City. Okay. Um, so we're able to do some production out of this place because we aren't selling to the public, right? Yeah. We are a private-only company. You have to contract with us. You have to bring us. We're not going to farmer's markets. And after good conversations um, you know, with the health department, made sure that everything was kind of copacetic with yeah. what we're doing. So that's the other cool thing about this path you're going down is yeah. that it's kind of still under the radar where you're not so like just beat over the head with regulations. Correct. Yeah. Because you're serving private people. Serving, serving private people. We're not. And that's a really strong decision that we yeah. made. We're not doing ticketed events. We're not the pop-up company. Yeah. We're not kind of doing that aspect of the I business. I am your chef. I am your chef. Yeah. You contract for us to come into your home and either, and we're finishing everything on site at the client's home. Yeah. Did I take you off your train of thought by any chance? Um, I think I might have. So really just kind of going back to that whole idea of when like the idea of the company at the point where we're at now started really coming to fruition is really just that, that core aspect of how do we expand out our use, you know, and how do we leverage the resources that we truly have? Well, we're doing custom menus. What do the top chefs that I'm friends with that I work with now want to be able to do? They want to do their food. What do I know how to do? Well, I've really learned well over the last, this is about a year and a half, just about two years basically into my side hustle kind of scrappy business. I've learned to sell. Like I've learned to talk to clients I reverse engineered a bunch of packages with price points and food costs based on my knowledge that would get me to a profitable place at the time. And you have the network of people who you know will execute that thing the best because you know their weaknesses, their passions. Their exactly. Goals. And I know you if I bring... Network. But what they don't want to do, they want to cook. They don't really want to sell the way that I'm trying to. Right? They, yes. they might not have the gift of gab fully. They might not be able to sit on a phone with clients and build proposals and kind of do all of the computer work and whatnot, which my father was a CIO and we, I grew up around computers, chief information officer of a company. Um, 
a few different companies over the course of his career. So your dad's a nerd. My dad's a nerd. Okay. My dad was like a computer science um, yeah. masters at Columbia the most loving back way. in like the I 60s. love nerds. Yeah. I need more nerds in my life. <laughs> so I've always been a bit of a computer geek growing yeah. up. So me kind of figuring out how to get proposals built and systems established and things like that came kind of naturally, but with a ton of research and kind of yeah. working through the case. I don't want to paint a false picture on that yeah. side. Yeah. But I knew my friends wanted to cook. They wanted to write menus. They wanted to cook and they could go on side and execute and they can do it with a smile on their face and give the client a great experience. Well, yeah. now that's the light for me. How do I bring opportunities to these chefs and leverage their talent abilities to not only execute events for our clients, but now put a fair amount of money in their pocket so that they're a partner in this yeah. game per job. And this is also a little bit of the start of the gig economy. We're talking about 2016, 2017 that I really started kind of turning this corner that it's not just about Dine DK, David Kirshner cooking for you. Yeah. It became like the chefs of Dine DK. Yeah. So really, you're, you're, you're kind of the guy that knows a guy. You're the middle man. Yeah. And I like this idea of like, hey, I, I started realizing like, I started saying no to people, which created this a little bit of like exclusivity where like you're just not going to take every job. And that created like a little bit of like a, a bar above than the other people doing this. But you got smart and you said, I realize I'm like, I'm saying no, but I'm, I'm also missing out on opportunity. Right. And I don't necessarily need to be the one. I can say yes, but I don't need to be the one to do the work. I can create the systems and process around what that work looks like and contract somebody else out to do it. And, you ever just, hear like- and just get a little piece. Exactly. And But that little piece is a lot l- less lifting than doing the whole thing. But I'm for the amount of work I'm putting into that from mm. connecting the dots, I'm getting my cut. Maybe it's a, yeah. not, maybe it's more than a little piece. I don't know, but it's not the whole shebang. It's, it's not the whole shebang. Yeah. The idea was that, listen, the chefs are going to be putting in most of the work, but what I can do for them is give them the infrastructure. And I started setting up that infrastructure around them. I put my corporate accounts together for the wholesale purveyors. I started putting my corporate credit card into the you know different grocery delivery services. I rented the space that they can all come to work out of. And all of a sudden, if I can create a world for these chefs to flourish within, and I'm a chef, you know, to my own degree, so I know the tools, the toys that we need to make this stuff happen. And if I put that investment up, you know, then all of a sudden I have a world that they can all utilize as a tool to help maybe give them a little access to life outside of the traditional. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you short. No, you're good. It's about creating opportunity for other people. 100%. Right? Um, that's really what I wanted to say, and that's really what you're trying to do here. And it's one of the things I love about what you're doing is it's not about me and how far can I go, but how can I help myself go further by helping others go further? Right. And listen, this is the, as I said, start of the gig economy. So like the yeah. Ubers are already out there in the world. And it definitely inspired me to kind of think about there's side hustles that are available for chefs. But when I was coming up, once you got into the freelance world, you had like two options. Yeah. You were either like picking up jobs for big time caterers where you're cooking out of recipe books or private or private yeah. where you're at the mercy of your client. Yeah. Um, so is there a Dine DK app out there yet where I can like just like boop, 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 boop and have a chef show up in my house? Uh, so no app just yet, but we did relaunch our website this nice. past year, um, you know, showcasing all of our services that we're offering nowadays. Cause again, listen, I spin a similar wheel and kind of take assessment of my resources every couple of years. So now, when you go on our website, not only can you book a private event, reach out to us. We've got an amazing team. I've got six full-time employees working on the business nowadays. So we're doing all the event planning in-house with our clients over the phone because we want to build those relationships and really yeah. be able to hear them and be there for them. And we're also doing private chef staffing services now. This was a new thing we rolled out about a year and a half ago. Um, we've always done a little bit on the side with just kind of under the radar with some clients that you know would hire me at times to go out to take care of their homes. And now... 
with a four and a half year old at home, my wife, life is a little bit more complicated. So signing on board for three months, you know, out in Aspen is not as easy as it used to be at one point in my life. But again, how do we bring opportunities to chefs? So we started basically an agency model within our business as well. So we're doing full-time, part-time and contract placements for chefs and trying to help them get into these, you know, ultra lucrative jobs and private chef opportunities. So you have your dine DK where mm-hmm. you help chefs connect with the consumer, but you're also connecting your network of chefs, chefs with other private opportunities, oper- private dining, or like, are they other entities that do private dining? No. So that's really about families that are looking for a regular chef. Okay. So you want a full-time private chef, you want a part-time or somebody just to join you on vacation. So somebody who's either coming by to fill your fridge with food um, or cook and do full service for your family each night of the week. So how do you make money doing that? Do you charge the re- the family for like the, the help to make the connection? Yeah. So basically the classic agency model is that you get to bill um, a percentage of the either contract salary or the annual salary. Okay. If it's an ongoing job, you typically do it off of the one year of the annual What's salary. What's the standard like percentage for like that type of... Um... Ranges between like 10 and 25% depending okay. on kind of where you're at. So, you know, if you get a person into a hundred plus thousand dollar a year job, you can make a pretty penny off. There's so many similarities to what you and I do. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, I, I, I'm a podcast. Mm. I started this, like I started this podcast to be a podcast. I didn't start this podcast to be a marketing arm to some product or service. And I'm selling the, 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 the conversation, the lessons I'm learning, that was the product. And I was also very transparent, but I don't have the answers to this. I'm just going and talking to people that are way smarter than Mm -hmm. I do. And that was always at the leading edge. But what, what's happened after nearly a thousand interviews with experts and badass restaurateurs throughout the industry is I now have this network of tools and services that have been referred to me and I don't have all the answers, but I have a whole list of people that know a lot more than I do. And I might be able to point you in the right direction. And then if you go with one of those tools or services, they say, Hey, thanks. This was super helpful. Here's Here's 20%, you know, or here's 15%. Here's 1%. I'll take anything (laughs) because all I'm doing is saying, Hey, let me help good people connect with good people. And here's this word of mouth, most trusted marketing tool out there way that I've found these people. Mm hmm. But it's a super powerful business model. There's a lot of similarity there. Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to the agency side of things, it's been really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're we're connecting with chefs that come from a bit of a different background than the pool we usually play with. So when it comes to our events, I'll get to that in just a minute about kind of how we designate those chefs. Um, but we really get to reach out to this larger pool of really experienced, accomplished private chefs and try to find new opportunities to get them into position with these clients to have something that's stable and ongoing. And yeah. I also get the opportunity now because I you know, take the lead on that with uh, one of the other members of my team um, to really vet these clients too and make sure that these are actually healthy environments that we're putting these chefs into. Yeah. You know, not every client is right for us, just like not every chef that, you know, is out there is going to be right for the type of work that we do. How do you keep all these contracts in order? Like, how do you make sure people, like, how do you, do you have like a whole department that's like their responsibility is following up for like, yeah. So the infrastructure has been the really kind of interesting side, um, of growth that we've had within this business. So, um, we use, we use a whole kind of suite of tech tools to kind of keep up with things these days. Back in the day, it started with just me on a Google calendar and just kind of plotting jobs in there and using like a template that I built in Google sheets, going to QuickBooks, making an invoice. Yeah. yeah. Going to QuickBooks, sending out the invoices, which we still do everything out of QuickBooks these days. Yeah. Um, it's just easy and connects with yeah. everything that we need to. Um, we have an accounting team that helps us, uh, kind of process our bookkeeping on a weekly basis. Uh, Bianca, who's my operations manager, she really handles invoicing and the intake of clients that kind of come to the front door. Then my other team members are Melissa, um, 
Melissa Frazier, who's our director of experiences, Robin and Tracy. Robin and Tracy and Melissa make up what we call the experience team. Uh, so Melissa is really overseeing the production um, of the events and a lot of the initial sales process, which I participated in a fair amount as well. Um, we have a CRM. So something that Chef School never really taught me about, customer relationship management tool. Uh, we use one called Copper. And basically, whenever a job comes in, we create a card for it. This tool also allows us to keep all the contacts of all of our clients in place, along with tracking, just like you do in restaurants through your POS system, you know, likes, dislikes, previous jobs that we did together. And we're able to, you know, create what, you know, what the industry usually refers to as pipelines. So we have these sales process pipelines that we drag every card through. And each card and stage kind of tells us from a visual standpoint where they're at in our sales process, what we owe them, what they owe us, and we're keeping notes and recording. Um, but you know, for we're doing about between two seventy five and three hundred events a year nowadays, wow. and it's a lot of information to kind of oh. keep on top of. So having all these like visual cards in our computer so, on our mobile devices we kind of drag them through kind of keeps yeah. us in line with it all we talk a lot about te- tech stacks in the restaurant industry oh, yeah. right so like you got restaurant systems pro that offers <clears throat> say like your your scheduling your inventory management mm-hmm. your your general ledger your you the list goes on and on um then there's also like the digital tech stacks like what right. so you mentioned copper was that basically your crm yeah so copper's our crm um so our main tech stock kind of breaks down like this copper's our main crm so all of our leads are coming in there and we're kind of managing the relationship of the whole event life cycle of the event through copper uh we use a tool called ubea um which is like an on-demand staffing tool so that's all of our scheduling and our communication with our chefs so we've got this really amazing pool of chefs that we work with that have all as i think i might have mentioned earlier come from michelin starred backgrounds uh that we leverage to really make these events happen what do you mean by on-demand staffing tool how is a normal staffing tool different than an on-demand staffing tool so a normal staffing tool you have people in your system you're plotting them in their scheduled shifts yeah and everybody can kind of access that to see when they have to work. Got it. Well, I'm dealing with a pool of freelancers. Yeah. So I don't know when they're actually available to do my jobs. Yeah. So what we need to be able to do is send out a job, job do, an availa- yeah, yeah. do an availability check on a job post. And then people like bid on it or what? Not bid, but... Yeah, like- they, they're able to respond. So we want to keep it fair and kind of accessible yeah. to all. So as opposed to doing like a first come, first serve type of basis, we have rules in place. So basically, we send out a job, that job has the salary broken down, has all of the budgetary pieces, food cost. Uh, is there a support team cost? We build all that into the job. We blast it out to the chefs. They get pinged on an app. They can see all the details. And then they have uh, two buttons, yes or no. Are you interested or are you not interested? Mm. If they're interested, they hit yes. We leave each job open for 24 hours, collect all of those interests, and then we make a decision on our side internally based on who's the right fit for the job, who's been working a lot recently, Does who hasn't. I see sometimes there's moments. <laughs> listen, you know, but how come they got the job and I didn't, it comes up, but not in a big way. Everybody's freelancing around yeah. kind of doing their hustle. Everybody, but that's where you, know, you come in. Cause you know, who's right for the job. We know who's right for the job. And we also, you know, we'll take care of those that take care of us, right? Those that are the most communicative, most accessible that we know, kill it. They're there. You know, we do a really intense vetting process to kind of bring in these chefs and, qualify them that they got the personality and the culinary chops to represent us the way that we need them to. But basically that's, that's the on-demand aspect of the staffing application. The idea that we can send it out to them, they can kind of 
express interest in the job and make their own personal decision if yeah. they actually want that gig or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I say to every chef when we hire them, you could say no to every single Just job I send autonomy you. autonomy that this industry has been so deprived of. But like, that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't like about the restaurant industry is like you really just kind of show up and do your job with your head down, work crazy right. hours, and like you have no sense of autonomy, no, no sense of con- contribution, right? Um, but I think it's that control aspect yeah. more than anything. Like you have the you like sign on board for a restaurant job, and you're you're there, and like yeah. you're grinding, and you're doing your thing, you know. And if you're doing six days a week with it, you're like, how long can I stay on this train for? You know, or this treadmill yeah. before I kind of fall off and get burnt out. But sometimes, like, how do you find that balance? Is, yeah. I think always the thing that. Especially restaurants these days, right? I think a lot of amazing restaurateurs out there are trying to answer that question. Well, there is no balance because you can't shut off the restaurant. But like if you in like, hey, like, you know what? Like I just need a week for myself. I need some some me time. Yeah. When you when you're a contractor, you can you're not getting money's not coming in, but then you can choose to go hard for two months. Absolutely. Right? And push. And I like that idea of push, 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 push. Uh, that's kind of my lifestyle now. Like mm-hmm. go on the road for a week. I'm pulling 15, 16 hour days for a week straight. <laughs> Everyone's like big fucking deal catch door. I do that, <laughs> I do that every day for my my whole life. But then I get to like go, huh? I yeah, and then kick it for a little bit to kind of regroup, get my thoughts together, like meditate and be like, what's the most important right now? Prior, make a list, prioritize the list, and then push through that for like three weeks, and then go back on the road again. Yeah. Um, but there's good. There's that balance. It's so important. Yeah. I mean, if you're gonna try to just make it as far down that road as possible. I think having some aspect of balance is huge there. So that's, that's what we're trying to do for chefs, right? We're like, how do we pay fair wages, make them really feel like partners in this creative process. We do the food interviews with clients kind of leading up to every job and collect likes and dislikes and favorite restaurants. And we kind of hand this off to the chefs to say, write your menu, write what you want to cook. Like I'm not dictating to you what you have to do by any means. Yeah. So you have your, co- your copper, which is your CRM. Right. That's the, the list of your clients and jobs. And yeah. And that's kind of where they are along the life cycle exactly. of the client. And I've geeked out over the years with like automation. So it helps inform my planning team by like, you complete this task, then this new task pops up. You yeah. Know? So we've kind of geeked you, out the you system move them down the, the, the life cycle of. A yeah, client. exactly. Like, kind of like collecting. Um, sounds, sounds like Trello. Oh yeah, it, well, Trello is another version of kind of the same kind of tool. Yeah, um, people have lots of different ways. You, have a, ways that you they create a card, it. new customer. Yep. Okay, I emailed them back. Moves to this slot. Oh, they told me what they're. Ex- I don't know. I'm making shit up right now. No, no, no. But it's the it idea takes that them along the, the journey of the life cycle. Just like anything, right? Whether you're setting up a station in order to execute a mass amount of covers, or you're trying to organize, you know, a big, you know, sixty plus events at one point. You need a process. You need something that's disciplined. You need a system that people can buy into that they can follow along because when you have a small team such as we do and you're managing a big book of business, the tools need to really help guide you along your pathway in yeah. a big way. So we, we started talking. We had mentioned copper. We mentioned Ubaya. 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 Yeah. So copper, Ubaya, QuickBooks runs our accounting. I have no history of accounting. Yeah. Um, I think just I have conceptually, a, I've kind of figured it out along the way. First thing I outsourced, or sorry, second thing I outsourced was the first yeah. thing was all the editing for me. Okay. And then the second thing uh, was book, bookkeeping. First thing for me was bookkeeping. I should not, I should not touch <laughs> things that need attention to detail. <laughs> My bookkeeping company has praised me for like <laughs> being a little bit knowledgeable. I've learned some things over the years about it, but yeah, that was filing the receipts, keeping up with what a P&L statement is going to look like, actually having an accurate picture of your finances when starting a small business in any capacity is vital. So I had a freelancer that was helping me initially, and now I work with a little bit more of an established company. Nice. Um, Anything we haven't discussed up to this point that you think is critical in your journey or lessons you've learned or 
uh, if people are similar or, or yeah. listen to your path and go, I like that path. I think I might be a good person to, to take, to take a similar path. Like what should they know? I think at the end of the day, I think the best advice I can give anybody is really it's taking an assessment of your resources and truly what success means to you. There were two topics that we touched on yeah. a bit earlier, but listen, money only gets you so far in life. I think happiness is an incredibly important and powerful piece and really kind of taking a look at what the skills that you have that you might not even realize are going to be the most valuable ones to you. Like I, I sweated on the hotline for, you know, uh, most of my early career, right? We're talking about over a decade plus and some really big 38 now, 39. I turned 39 this year. So I turned 39 in like two weeks. Nice. Um, Scary when you're getting this close to four. I know, man. Like, I'm 37 right now. I'm like, what the My 20s. Freak? Like, I was drinking till like 2, 3 in the morning every night and then getting on the hotline at 11 a.m. I have a now. I, I sit on the toilet shit. for like five hours. It's a whole different game. <laughs> but I think like really getting to a place where you can get a sense of really what's important to you and what you're driving towards. That's, I, I, I've been lucky enough throughout my career. Some call it luck. Some call it opportunity. I think you make your own luck to a big degree, but I'm also not um, ignorant to the fact that between relationships that I've had in my life, I've been able to leverage in certain ways that have helped get me to where I'm at. But I truly think it's important. Just like understand what you're trying to achieve. Um, I've been a part of a couple different entrepreneur programs. Um, I was able to apply and join something called the Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses program. I was halfway into it when COVID hit back in 2020 and kind of changed the whole spectrum of it. But it was a, it's a really great program. Anybody can apply for it. Um, that kind of takes small business owners that might not have traditional business education and kind of gives you some tools to think yeah. about things a bit differently. And one of my biggest takeaways, which I never thought about this from that program was don't ever start a business unless you know how you want to exit the business. Mm. That's huge. We, most restaurateurs exit strategies die. It's die. It's how long can <laughs> I survive? Yeah. It's, it's and like, you know what? It's without knowing where you're going it's hard to really navigate the difficult decisions that come up over the life of being a business owner or an entrepreneur or just running any business. Yeah. You know, it's like you hit a place where all of a sudden it goes, do I go left? Do I go right? Well, what am I trying to achieve? If mm. my, and this happened to me, right? Go back to some of the story when my goal was to have a happy balanced life that I could be present in the lives of my friends, family, and actually experience a life that was beyond just behind the closed doors of the kitchen all day long. Yeah. Business started getting really busy and I had to make a decision which way I was going to go for it, you know, and going the direction that I did because I knew my goal was to kind of have a, a stable business that can help me live my life the way I wanted to was what then actually led me to this place of thinking, well, what if I recruited friends? And then all of a sudden that you fast forward, you know, and we talked about this timeline, but it's about eight years now that I've been doing Dine DK for. We've got 45 chefs that are basically on our roster that work with us. You know, at any given point, there's about 15 to 20 that are really engaged. We can do six events in a night now mm. because we have space they can work out of. Some chefs work out of their own space, but we can leverage all these different teams and set them up for success yeah. and do way more than I was ever capable on my yes. own. Yes. So you mentioned something earlier, and I don't know if I really brought it to the surface, but I meant to. This idea of you created back to the idea of like you started saying no to things that you didn't want to do, but that was money being left on the table. Right. But then you realize, light bulb, I don't have to do it. I can just create the systems and processes that I use when I do choose to do it and then put somebody else through those systems and processes. And the one thing I'll add into that though, is leverage my experience to help mentor and guide yeah. to a successful place. And that's how you create an exit strategies. You don't, yeah. you don't become dependent on people where you do need the people 
and this is where it gets people to hear. Don't, you don't want a you don't want a people dependent organization. You want a right. system dependent organization. Right. So you hinge on the systems, and then you sh- you shove amazing people into those systems. Exactly. And that's what you're doing. Give them uh, the tools to be successful and set them up. But now, like you, now you're creating a money machine. Now you're creating a machine of, of processes and systems and branding and culture. Now you can turn to somebody who's getting into the game or somebody who's bigger than you, who maybe wants to acquire you, mm-hmm. and they're acquiring the systems, the processes, the procedures, and all that shit. Right. Exactly. That's your exit strategy. Yeah, I think for us, kind of down the road, um, you know, if we have the right partner that yeah. came along, that we can become part of a bigger entity and kind of feed more people and provide more opportunity for chefs, be super intriguing to us. Yeah. Um, so, mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Uh, and um, on that, that that idea of transform the industry, where do you think we are now? Where do you think we need to go? What needs to transform? How do we go into the the future less reactive, more proactive? That's a great question. I think it's about empowering people to really take more control over their lives. I think valuing balance over sacrifice is the only way that we're going to lead because at the end of the day, hospitality is a, is a people driven industry. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have people that are fresh, are empowered, we're going to continue to lose them to our industry. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a matter of, we got to, we have to crack this puzzle of what it's going to take to allow people to cook and do their thing. Um, I think it's part of on the public to understand the value of what they're getting. Yeah. And, and the, the value of food in general, I think, which is a big so issue. So much so because the people we, that are creating it and the actual value of food, which is right. A big Cause issue. we can only lean on the restaurant owners and the food, you know, business directors to say, you got to pay your people better, you yeah. know, or you got to get a better schedule in place. Well, you yeah. know what? You can't do any of that if you're losing money and yeah. the place is going to close down. Yeah. Um, but I think of it. So it's weird. The past 10 years has been this resurgence of like slow food mm. and food grown holistically and, sustainably and people are like, yeah, I want food that's good for me and my body and doesn't make me like allergic to bread. You know, <laughs> like I want good, like normal traditionally grown food for like the, the way we grew food 10,000 years ago. And beyond that, the way like the Amazonians were growing food in the jungle where they just, yeah, where exactly. they lived in the garden. <laughs> they were a part of the garden. You right. know what I mean? Um, we're realizing that, that when we eat that kind of food, we feel better, but guess what? That food is a different beast than the time consuming, the, 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 the food system that we created, mm-hmm. you know, and food, we think food is, should be cheap, but it's really, it's, it should be a big chunk of our income. Yeah. Like over 20% of your, your income, I think should go to food. Listen, and I think, you know, we look at what the world is looking like right now and it's probably creeping up there for many people these yeah. days. But the question is then on the other side of it, how much of that is actually going for affording the food or is it lining pockets of bigger yeah, companies that we, are kind of controlling all of we that? We can't do yeah. what we have to do, do until the consumer at the end of the day, the, 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 the consumer drives everything. Mm. They need to understand what we need to, to do what we do. Right. Right. And that it's coming from a place of making sure that people are taken care of. And yeah. that's, it's very much what we're trying to do. Like there's clients that aren't right for us. And we, I have this conversation with clients almost every day and there's this gaff at times of the price that we charge. And my response every single time is we're trying to pay our chefs a livable wage, a fair wage for the effort and the time that goes into this just because you know, you see, and sometimes these conversations come up a little more on the intense side, just because you see somebody show up at your house to serve you dinner and they're there for two hours. It's not always valued the amount of time that goes in to make sure those two hours are executed flawlessly and seamlessly. Yeah. And it's, it's more than just the day and a half of prep that led up to it. It's the 10 plus years of experience that these chefs are bringing to the table to make that two hours look that easy. Yeah. And there's a value attached to that in a big way that yeah. sometimes when it comes to food service is overlooked. So we need, we need our consumers to really, Kind of open their eyes to a big piece of that. 
Chef David Kirshner. I'm loving this conversation, man. And we're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. And we're going to bust out a true speed round. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Look, I don't need to explain to you that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. This is because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located or what are your hours? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow-up links via text message. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone call 24-7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most, your guests in-house. The time is now to prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month and learn more about pop menus, full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often, Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Following up. What is your biggest weakness? Overthinking. Going back to following, like the it factor, following up. How do you make sure you follow up? You keep track of who you've spoken to, what you've done. You check back in. 
and you just you never you never give up. This goes back to probably your tools like copper. It's a list essentially. It's a list. It's just knowing where you've come, where you're trying to go, and who's helping you get there. Yeah. And sometimes just touching base. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? Service minded. Mm. What is the biggest challenge today? Sustainable growth. How are you overcoming it? Finding the right people. Hiring. That's Shoot. not one word. Yeah. <laughs> You know, this is a whole other vertical I'm getting into as a tangent. This is a whole other vertical that the traditional restaurant industry is competing with right now, too. Mm. You know? Yeah. But good. Um, I said it. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. A core value. A way to be. Honor. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? A way to go above and beyond what the guest or the client expects. Uh, anticipate needs. Mm. What is one book that's a must-read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Old classic culinary artistry, Andrew Dornberg, Karen Page. Nice. Yeah. I love that. I love Karen Page. And uh, Dor- um, I, I don't know why. I, I talk with her, so I always remember her name. Nah. Uh, but their series of books, uh, Flavor Bible, the Vegetarian Flavor Bible. Set the tone for my whole yeah, life. Yeah, man. It's a great. <laughs> I, I, I love their books. Um, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Ah. Uh, so, as we touched on, balancing life for their people. Mm. What is one piece of technology you've recently adopted that's had a huge impact on your operation? CRMs. Copper. Copper. What is one of your favorite features of copper? It skims your, your Gmail inbox. So you can see all of your emails and the emails of your team with clients inside of a client page attached to that client's email address. Uh, AKA I open up my client's record, whoever's attached to it. Uh, meaning like say it's, Say it's Katie. Yeah. I go into Katie's event. Katie's email is on that event. We can see a flow of everybody on our team that spoke to Katie and what they talked about. So somebody gets sick. They can't come into work that day. Somebody has to take over an event in the middle of something. Somebody has a family emergency. There's clarity and transparency to pick up where everybody left off. Got it. Uh, this is the last question. It's a doozy. So get ready for it. Bring it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the mm. memories of you, your work, and your businesses would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Ooh, that is a doozy. Um, take care of others. One. Be honest and do right by people. Two. Yeah, I guess that was joint. Um, you should get enjoyment out of everything you do. <laughs> get enjoyment out of everything you do. There is a kitchen attached to us. We are there in is. a residential type building. Um, this is just restaurant unstoppable. <laughs> a little scrappy. Um, and the only other thing we get asked, I'm just, I'm just going to roll through the fire lines. So we got to wrap it up. Uh, who do you respect and admire and believe it to make a great guest mentor like you made for us today. If you can't think of one person, like give me a list, man. Cause this is how I find my, this is, this makes my life so much easier. Um, Luis Herrera. One. Damien Sansonetti. Two. You don't have to keep going. If, if I'll give you a third one. Okay. Do uh, and, uh, Olivier Mueller. Beautiful. Yeah. I love this conversation. Look how guys I'm coming after you and how can <laughs> still going? Deep, deep. How, <laughs> how can we connect with you? If we've really enjoyed today's conversation, maybe we're a chef yeah. who's burnt out in the industry and we're, we're interested in different non-traditional paths. 
So listen, we're, we're here to lift everybody up and find opportunities for people. You check us out at dinedk.com. That's D-I-N-E-D-K.com. You can apply to be a chef for us on the website. Obviously, you can apply for events on the website too. Um, but just come reach out to us. We're on Instagram under the same handle. Uh, you connect with us. You know, We're looking for chefs to put them in situations to really be successful and give them opportunities to live their life on their own terms. Beautiful. Again, thank you so much, Chef David Kirshner. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for coming. Thank you. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chef David Kirshner, and just for being a shining example of what it looks like to use your special, unique experiences and talents to find a void in the market and to fill that void and to think outside the box and to not just rinse and repeat what thousands or hundreds of thousands of restaurateurs and chefs have done before us, but to really say, what is the world missing? How can I add a unique value to the world? And how does my unique experience give me an unfair advantage for this opportunity? Think like that. It's almost like a Venn diagram uh, where like your, your unique skills, where there's a void in the world. Like just try to find ways to create these win-win situations for yourself and other people while using your unique skills and experiences. So I think this is just such a great example of that. And I wish more people would think like this and I encourage you to do that. Uh, awesome stuff. Thanks again, chef David Kirshner. So if you guys are enjoying this podcast and you want more content coming your way, if you want us to even improve, then we need your help. And there's a ton of ways you can support the show. Uh, one way you can support the show is by supporting our sponsors. We don't let anybody sponsor the show. We really do vet our sponsors and we're looking to as we go into 2023 to really grow our relationship with sponsors because we believe in these companies because they've been referred to us organically countless times. And uh, that's what you can kind of expect going to the future, more of a, a 365 approach with our sponsors. Uh, so support our sponsors. They'll continue to support the show. Anytime a tool or service is recommended on the show, reach out to that tool or service that said restaurant unstoppable sent you their way. They sometimes will pay us a commission. And that helps so much. And we thank you in advance. Share this podcast with everyone and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. And please come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. This is where I connect my listeners with the tools, services, and people being referred to us organically in nearly a thousand episodes. And like right now, starting this year in 2023, we're going to have ask a peer, ask a pro, where basically you can show up and have a pro where you can ask any question you could possibly have and they'll help you with that. Or just ask a peer, somebody who's going ex- through what you're going through right now. Maybe you just need somebody to talk to. Well, we have somebody for you. And I cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to Jared over at Sumatra Podcast for his editing and Sam Hall over at SavinSam.com for his social media and videography. Can't do it without my team. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.